go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for your living and mighty word. Uh, Lord, that we are able to preach it and proclaim it and study it and encourage one another with it here in this country freely. Um, God, you have shown me how, how that's not true everywhere, and we take it for granted. Lord, help us not to take it for granted. This morning, Lord, as we dig into Hosea, Lord, as we approach the end of this um, sometimes very arduous uh, sermon series, Lord, that you would be cultivating in our hearts a honor and reverence for your holiness and an understanding of your amazing love for us, uh, your willingness to not just set aside our sin as something you'll ignore, Lord, but to pay the price fully for it. Thank you for being our Savior, for paying our debt, being our ransomer and our redeemer. This morning, God, may you be glorified in all that we think and do and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. We are in the last of two, there's two sermons left, and we're in the second to last of Hosea. Can I get a woo? Yeah. Um, it has been an intense uh, topic. Paul, you know, he's, he's wonderful, and he says, well, you, you said you were going to preach it, and I said, I know, but it's so hard. Um, this has not been easy for me, because this isn't my natural inclinations, and I think that's where the Lord told me to preach it, um, because I needed to understand some more about him than I normally um, would choose to understand, and I think that's important for all of us, amen, to not fit God into our box, uh, but to let him fill all in all and be our fullness. So in the last section here, Hosea chapters 12, 13, and 14, there's kind of two parts. Um, and each des describes um, a people's sin and a command directly from the Lord to them and what they must do because of that sin. But the audiences and, frankly, the tone of each of these two sections couldn't be more different. The first that we're going to be looking at today is God's gentle, by Hosea's standard, gentle rebuke of Judah, the southern kingdom. Remember, at this point, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel had been split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Ephraim and Judah. It's God's gentle rebuke of them. The second is God's forceful condemnation of Ephraim, the northern kingdom. In the first, God calls the Jews to hold fast to him and not slip into that sin which they are tempted to slip into. And in the second, God describes their fate of judgment and pleads with them to repent and turn back to him and be restored. So we have two situations here. One is God saying, hold fast to me. You're tempted to let go. Don't. And the second is, you let go a long time ago. It's time for you to come home. Now, we're each of us in the beginning of our lives, uh, before Christ, B.C. in our lives, amen? Uh, we're the rebellious Israelites. We're the northern tribe. Our actions and our heart are a bitter provocation to a holy God. And they demand the blood guilt that he describes in the next part, which we'll be going over next week. But that's not the end of our story. We'll also be going over this next week. God has provided a way to be made clean. Hallelujah. 
to have that blood guilt transferred away from us. In this sermon, we're going to focus not on the rebellious Israel. We've spent a lot of sermons focusing on rebellious Israel, but chastened Judah instead. For we too can relate here, I think, as we walk the walk of the crucified life. There are many temptations to depart that path. Amen? Sometimes for expediency or um, for distraction or because we think we know a quicker way up the mountain than taking the switchbacks. But like Judah in this case, we must hold fast to the faith, never letting go lest we find ourselves far from that light, far from that path, and recipients of the fullness of God's judgment for our insults to Jesus' love and sacrifice. Um, a text that I'd like to read that wasn't in my notes, but I want to, is uh, Romans 11, verses 20 through 22. The men's group is studying Romans, and we're just going through this portion uh, recently. And it describes the branches of Israel being broken off of the roots so that the new branches can be replaced. And there's this warning here. It says, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. This is the primary theme of today. Stand fast in faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare us. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you in being grafted in, as we talked about this morning, into God's family, provided we continue in his kindness. Otherwise, we too will be cut off. But let us read today's passage. We're going to be starting Hosea chapter 12, uh, verse 2, and going on until almost the end till verse 13. The Lord has a covenant lawsuit against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he attacked his brother. In his manly vigor, he struggled with God. He struggled with an angel and prevailed, and he wept and begged for his favor. He found God at Bethel, and there he spoke with him. As for the Lord Almighty, the Lord is the name by which he is remembered. But you must return to your God by maintaining love and justice, by waiting for your God to return to you. The businessman loves to cheat. They use dishonest scale. A frame boasts, I am rich, I have become wealthy. In all that I have done to gain my wealth, no one can accuse me of any offense which is actually sinful. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as the days of old. I spoke to the prophets. I myself revealed many visions. I spoke in parables through the prophets. Is there idolatry in, in Gilead? Certainly its inhabitants will come to nothing. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Surely their altars will be like stones heaped up on a plowed field. Jacob fled to the country of Aram, and Israel worked to acquire a wife. He tended sheep to pay for her. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt by a prophet, and due to a prophet, 
Israel was preserved alive. This is the word of our Lord. Hallelujah. Let's start with that first verse, chapter, uh, verse 2. The Lord also has a covenant lawsuit against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. Um, some context here. Why does it say also? Well, the whole book of Hosea has been a covenant lawsuit against Ephraim, Israel, the northern uh, kingdom. And here he's saying, I also have a problem with you, Judah. Um, and it's not as severe of a problem, but he does have a problem, and it will require punishment. It will require uh, a removal of blessings. Remember that the vast majority of the book of Hosea uh, and his oracles are against Israel because that was his ministry field. He was preaching to Israel to repent before the coming destruction. However, sprinkled through the texts have been warnings and judgments against Judah, and they're few and far between. There's only about half a dozen. But here now the Lord is laying out his principal covenant lawsuit with his less than faithful bride, Judah. Again, note the difference in tone between what God's declaration is here to Judah and what he says in verse 14 to Ephraim. Listen to this. But Ephraim has bitterly provoked me to anger, so he will hold him accountable for the blood he has shed, and the Lord will repay him for the contempt he has shown. It says Ephraim, that's Israel, the northern kingdom, has bitterly provoked the Lord's wrath. The word bitterly there is interesting. Uh, in the original text, it's absolute. So it's really saying, you have provided the most bitter provocation of all time against me. That's pretty harsh. Now, where Ephraim has bitterly provoked the Lord's wrath, Judah has transgressed a covenant. Where Ephraim will be held under blood guilt, Judah will be disciplined. Where Ephraim will be repaid for the contempt of the Lord in like kind, Ephraim, Judah, excuse me, will be repaid for his faithlessness. And so God gives the people of Judah a role model to follow to not go down the path of its neighbor, Israel, and an example to emulate. Though, I think at first glance, this is a strange one. In verse 3, it says, In the womb he attacked his brother. In his manly vigor, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and prevailed, and he wept and begged uh, for his favor. Who's he comparing? Who's, who's he re referencing here? Jacob. Now this is weird, I think, because at first blush, Jacob isn't exactly somebody I would encourage anyone to emulate. Amen? So he's brought us back to a particular patriarch of Israel, Israel himself, more specifically, Jacob before he was renamed Israel. And this is a character of some infamy, and I think maybe some confusion in the Bible, but to fully understand what the Lord is telling Judah through this prophecy, we have to go back and perhaps rediscover who this man of God was and why he was so important. Now, Jacob is an interesting character, to say the least. He was born, if you remember, seizing the heel of his older twin Esau. Already, his ambitions for favor and blessing were obvious. 
But things would only escalate between his brother and him from there. In Genesis 25, Esau, returning home from a long hunting expedition, collapses by Jacob, who is preparing a meal. And Esau is famished and exhausted. He begs a plate of food. And Jacob, ever the clever manipulator, trades him his birthright as the oldest son for a plate of food. In Genesis 25, verses 30 through 33, it says this. So Esau said to Jacob, feed me some of that red stuff. Yeah, that red stuff, because I'm starving. But Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear an oath to me now. So Esau swore an oath to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And the red stuff, by the way, was lentils, just so you know. Um, in Genesis 27, Isaac, this is Esau and Jacob's father, is old and in his tent. And he calls out to Esau and brings him in and tells him his desire to give him his blessing um, in sight of God before he died. So he says, go and hunt game and bring me some delicious food. And when you do, I will bless you. Overhearing this. Jacob's mother helps Jacob to impersonate his older brother. And not just omitting the truth, but literally putting animal skins on his arms and neck so that when their blind father touched him, he would feel the hair and think it was Esau. Intentional deception. And so Jacob played the part perfectly and stole the blessing from their father um, to Esau. And here is that blessing, Genesis 27, verses 28 and 29. May God give you the dew of the sky and the richness of the earth and plenty of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. You will be Lord over your brothers and the sons of your mother will bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Obviously, when Esau found out the treachery, he was upset, very upset. And so far, we might put Jacob down um, as a reprobate. However, there's one important aspect of Jacob that helps inform us of his motivation and the heart behind these things he's done. And we arrive to it in Genesis 32. After Jacob and his two wives, and trust me, there's a whole story there, leave the land of their father, they're not welcome back, they're forced to turn homeward into danger as Esau is seeking blood and hunting for him with a band of men. And after seeing everyone, all the, um, well, the wealth of Laban, all the, the sheep and the women and everyone across the river, Jacob stays across the river and wrestles with the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 32, verse 25 through 30, he wrestles all night. When the man saw that he could not defeat Jacob, he struck the socket of his hip so that the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while they wrestled. Then the man said, let me go for dawn is breaking. I will not let you go, Jacob replied, unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? And he answered, Jacob. No longer will your name be Jacob, the man told him, but Israel, because you have fought with God 
and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, please tell me your name. Why do you ask my name? The man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, Peniel, explaining, certainly I have seen God face to face and have survived. Now, when you read that story in Genesis, does anyone find that confusing? Really, you all just, that makes perfect sense. It doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. Why did Jacob keep holding on to him after his, his hip was dislocated? Uh, what was going through his mind? There's so many things that are confusing about that story. Um, did he understand who he was wrestling with? But Hosea gives us some insight into the desperation of Jacob as he clung on to the Christophany. And what that word means is a fancy Greek word that means the appearance of Christ. Uh, it's a theophany of Christ. Literally, he wrestled with Jesus on that day. Here we learn an important truth. He says, he wept and begged for his favor. He held on even though he was defeated and wept and begged for favor. He clung to him even though he couldn't fight anymore and wept and begged for his favor. And this is important. Victory in the kingdom of God comes through defeat. Amen? Jory, wherever you are, brother, I think you understand what I'm talking about. Victory in the kingdom comes through defeat. Jacob understood the stakes of the game, and he would bear any injury to attain what he sought. What did he seek? He sought the Lord's favor. Do you seek the Lord's favor? In verses, uh, the second half of chapter, verse 4 and 5 of Hosea, it says, He found God at Bethel, and there he spoke with him. As for the Lord Almighty, Yahweh is his name, is the name by which he is remembered. And so, clinging to God spiritually as well as physically, Jacob received the blessing of God's favor. And remembering God's promise to him, he, uh, when he laid his head upon the stone, he traveled back to Bethel, and there he received a new identity. Genesis 35, 10 through 12 that God said to him, your name is Jacob, but your name will no longer be Jacob. Israel will be your name. So God named him Israel. Then God said, said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, even a company of nations, will descend from you. Kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I give to you. To your descendants, I will also give this land. That is amazing. That covenant that we talked about in Bible study between Abraham and God, that there would be an offspring that the world would be blessed by. You have this sneak, this cheat, and God saying, I'm going to honor that blessing through you, that it's continuing. No longer would you be remembered as a sneaky cheat. He inherited the promise of God to Abraham as Israel, which means he struggles with God. The old things had passed away. But notice, 
God isn't telling us to be like Israel. He's telling us to be like Jacob. Be like Jacob? Now, I don't think many would implore others to be like Jacob. Hey, Zach, you need to be more like Jacob. No. He was a selfish liar and a manipulative trickster, and yet that is precisely what Yahweh was telling the people of Judah. Why? Because in spite of Jacob's rather obvious character flaws, he sought after God's love and justice. Remember the story of Jacob wrestling with Christ. Jacob prevailed against God, though he was physically defeated, because he held on. He held fast. And so Hosea 12.6, the main thrust of this passage, so you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. When everything around Jacob was falling apart and his brother was searching, with him, searching for him with a small army, what did he do? He fell to his knees and he prayed to the Lord. Here is Jacob's prayer to the Lord. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, I am not worthy of the least of your steadfast love or any of the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. Jacob, for all his flaws, understood himself. He knew that he was not worthy of God's loving kindness or his mercy. And yet he pursued God with vigor, begging the Lord with tears in his eyes for forgiveness and for blessing. Along each step of his life, Jacob strove for the favor of the Lord. While his brother Esau was content to trade his inheritance for some lentils, Jacob sought the blessing of standing in the Lord's shadow. He wrestled all night for it and begged for it even in defeat. And guess what? Defeat is where he found it. Deceit is where we find it. Hallelujah. And so, brothers and sisters, be like Jacob. Hold fast. But we have a second part to this. 12, uh, verse 7 through 8. The businessman loves to cheat. They use dishonest scales. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I've become wealthy. And all that I have done to gain my wealth, no one can accuse me of any offense that is actually sinful. Ah, uh, the famous Hosea anticlimax strikes again. Just when you think that the oracle has turned the page towards something positive, God doubles down on the specifics. Now, the word translated here as businessmen or traders is actually Canaanite. Hosea is comparing Israel, and by implication Judah, with their ancestral enemies, saying, in effect, you're no different from those whom God destroyed by Joshua. You rely on your own cunning and cleverness to get ahead instead of relying on Jehovah-Jireh the Lord who provides. Well, God's implication is twofold, and it's sobering. Was it for this that I redeemed you? God is asking. 
to make you a bunch of Canaanites? And secondly, when you relive the Exodus each year, camping out as your fathers did, is it only make-believe? Or is it to learn, relearn the lesson of those days that man does not live by bread alone? And so here's a word of warning to any of us who seek success in this world. The Canaanite claims, I haven't done anything sinful to gain my wealth. All my finances are above board. And I think we all say this, amen? Is everyone here's finances above board? No? Well, you guys are honest. Hallelujah. Um, the tricky part is that humans are clever little devils, and we excel at rationalizing our behaviors, especially when we stand to gain. So here is a following. I, I've been on a kick of autobiographies, Christian autobiographies, and I just read The God's Smuggler by um, Brother Andrew. And I'm going to read you about a page from it because it perfectly illustrates the difference between clinging to God's mercy and justice and clinging to our own understanding. Now, to preamble for this, um, Brother Andrew, with no money to his name, traveled to Scotland to study to become a mercenary, uh, not a mercenary, a missionary, a mercenary, sort of this, yeah, a missionary. And part of that is they have to learn to live by faith alone. And so he makes a covenant with God. He says, God, I know that you will provide, if you want me to be here and you want to have a relationship with me, you will provide the tuition every year. It was like 20 pounds per year or something. Um, and it was, he, he even admits it was a very juvenile um, covenant, but he wanted, he wanted the evidence of his faith. And God was faithful. And yet, on this one month, he's a day away from having to owe tuition, and he does not have it. He's a shilling short. And there's no exceptions, no late payments. And he called this the game of the royal way. He realized that God would not just provide. He provides in a very specific way, a royal way, as a king would. He says, the last round of the game was the most subtle of all. It was December 30th, and I had to have my application in the mail that day if I was going to get to London on the 31st. At 10 o'clock in the morning, one of the students shouted up the stairwell that I had a visitor. I ran down the stairs thinking, this must be my delivering angel. But... When I saw who it was, my heart dropped. This visitor wasn't coming to bring me money. He was coming to ask for it. For it was Richard, a friend I had made months ago in the Patrick slums, a young man who came to school occasionally when he just had to have some cash. With dragging feet, I went outside. Richard stood on the white pebble walkway, hands in his pockets, eyes lowered. Andrew, he said, would you be having a little extra cash? I'm hungry. I laughed, and I told him why. I told him about the soap and the razor blades, and as I spoke, I saw a coin. It lay among the pebbles, the sun glinting off it in just a way that I could see it, but not Richard. I could tell from, that it's, from its color that it was a shilling. Instinctively, I stuck out my foot and covered the coin with my toe. Then, as Richard and I talked, I reached down and picked up the coin along with a handful of pebbles and tossed the pebbles nonchalantly down one by one until at last I had just the shilling in my hand. But even as I dropped the coin into my pocket, the battle began. 
that coin meant I could stay in school. I wouldn't be doing Richard a favor by giving it to him. He'd spend it on drink and be thirsty as ever in an hour. While I was still thinking up excellent arguments, I knew it was no good. How could I judge Richard when Christ told me so clearly that I must not? Furthermore, this was not the royal way. What right had an ambassador of Christ to hold on to money when another of the king's children stood in front of him saying he was hungry? I shoved my hand back into my pocket and drew out the silver coin. Look, Richard, I said, I do have this. Would it help any? Richard's eyes lit up. It would, mate. He tossed the coin into the air and ran down the hill. And with a light heart that told me I had done the right thing, I turned to go back inside. And before I reached the door, the postman turned down our walk. In the mail, of course, was a letter for me. I knew when I saw Gretchen's handwriting that it would be from the prayer group at Ringers and that there would be cash inside. And there was a lot of money, a pound and a half, over 30 shillings. I love that story. The God Smuggler is all stories like that. Um, I love it because it's so illuminating and it's so refreshing. Woe to us if we consider our money to be ours. Amen? I think we're tempted sometimes to console ourselves by saying that the Lord has blessed us with it, therefore it's ours. But I think by doing so, we let go of God in order to take hold of our dirty shilling. If we take our eyes off the eternal prize of Jesus, we become blind to the needs of his children around us. We become Canaanites. Did God redeem us for so small a life, or is there something greater and higher that we have lost sight of? Verses 9 through 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of old. I spoke to the prophets. I revealed myself, excuse me, I myself revealed many visions I spoke in parables through the prophets. In counterpoint to the rich Canaanite who connives his way to posterity and security, God reminds Judah that it has always been he who would provide for them. His warning is simple. If you cannot hold fast to the all-sufficient one, if you cannot hear his calling through the prophets, you'll lose everything you've gained in the light of his countenance. Has the Lord brought you out of Egypt, or are you still a slave to sin? Is anyone here free? Let me try again. Is anyone here free? Amen. Does the Lord speak to you every day? You know, he does every day, every moment of every day, though I think sometimes we become hard of hearing. Like the children of Judah, we have to live, We excuse me, like the children of Judah, we have the live and quickening words of the Holy Spirit. Truly a megaphone of God's voice through the scriptures. But we have more. We have the Spirit of God himself in us, searching our hearts, touching our minds. And we mustn't grieve the Spirit by turning away. We have to cling to him. 
Verse 11 and 12. Is there idolatry in Gilead? Certainly its inhabitants will come to nothing. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Surely their altars will be like stones heaped up on a plowed field. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Then Israel worked to acquire a wife. He tended sheep to pay for her. Let's talk about that first verse. God will not accept the worship or sacrifice of a hypocrite. He is not interested in a portion of our time and money if the rest of us revels in idolatry. Here, Hosea is naming specific towns that will reap wrath when, uh, when reap the wrath when it arrives if they don't return to the Lord. And I just want to clarify here: I'm not saying you have to be sinless um, in order to worship the Lord, because that's not true. I'm saying if you come here and you worship on Sundays, but the rest of your life you vigorously pursue your own appetites. And this is just an afterthought, like a, maybe a hedge your bets, you know, where you might vote against pass because it might happen. That's not enough. God wants all of us, amen? He's not saying come perfect. He's saying come. Jacob wasn't perfect when he clung. He clung anyways. Now, verse 12 is an oddball. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, it's a parenthetical aside, and it's reminding us back to that metaphor about Jacob that we were just talking about earlier. And its importance, I think, comes in the fact that Jacob, who, is, who Judah is told to emulate, is not a hero to be worshipped. He was an ordinary man with pedestrian concerns. He needed to get a wife, and he had to work really hard for her twice. And uh, he tended sheep to pay for her. We're not called to emulate a superhero. Hallelujah. We're called to emulate someone just like us. A reprobate. Whose only virtue was that he sought and clung to God. I think only fools uh, in the mis... Uh, I don't know how to say it. It's foolish to say that the crucified life is only for the special super elect. It's only a calling for your pastor. Um, whether we accept it or not, the spiritual life is not a special deluxe version of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. And that's from A.W. Tozer. Verse 13. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt by a prophet, and due to a prophet, Israel was preserved alive. Brothers, sisters, the word of God is powerful. It preserves life. It slays sinful natures, and it convicts the ungodly, commands demons, and compels obedience. And the word of God is a treasure. May we never lose sight of what a precious thing it is for us to have and to hold. Amen. God spoke to his, excuse me, God spoke to the people of Israel and Judah through his appointed prophets. But the choice to hear was still theirs. Israel abandoned Yahweh. They even took steps to protect themselves from his coming wrath. Judah remained, though more out of complacency than conviction. God loves his children, and he desires so much for us 
to have more than just a contented life of a Canaanite. His call rings clear. No matter what corner of the world you find yourself in or what part of the Bible you happen to be reading that morning, he calls us to cling to him, to strive to enter the narrow way. Luke 13, 24 says, Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Will you strive with God? Will you let go of your life in order to gain Christ? If we do, brothers and sisters, we're more than conquerors. 